This morning's text is Psalm 36, and it can be found on page 435 of the Bibles around the room. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Free City. Good morning. Thanks, Jackson. That was great. Uh, hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kevin Teets. Uh, my wife and I have been a part of the Free City family for, gosh, it's probably going on five years now. Um, we've, for the last few years, been leading a city group along with Kyle and Kelly Gilbert, who just had a baby, which is really awesome, so they couldn't make it. That's spectacular. Um, and I, I'm excited uh, to hopefully just draw out something that God has to say to us through Psalm 36. Um, so if you, like, get anything else out of today, uh, hear this. We lament wickedness, but God's precious steadfast love gives us hope. Um, what does it mean to lament? So lament is to express sorrow, mourning, or regret, often visibly. Uh, are there, there's probably some Enneagram nerds in the room, perhaps. Uh, so I, I can't call myself an Enneagram nerd, uh, but certainly uh, I'd identify most with the qualities of a seven. And for, thank you. And so for, for what that's worth, if anybody doesn't understand that, it means that I can do a really good job of ignoring negative emotions. The Enneagram does a really good job of pointing out your flaws. Okay, the thing on personality tests, personality tests, they're really helpful in some ways, but they can be abused, so don't abuse them. Like, if you take a personality test and go, ah, oh, like, this is just how I am, you're abusing it. That's not like pigeonholing you. Know that it, it actually is calling you to grow. So whether it's Enneagram or whatever else you use, know that, like, an opportunity to know yourself, to know the Lord, and grow out of that. So I'm a seven. I do a fantastic job of ignoring negative emotions. Um, so in order to get in the mood, because it was really difficult to read a lament of wickedness and spend time on it this week, uh, I watched The Bachelorette. <clears throat> so, uh, yes, there's plenty to lament about the TV shows, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. Uh, I <laughs> really like, you, you watch the show and you just go, how could anybody think that this is a good idea to meet someone that you're going to marry? And I felt so vindicated in that, at, at the end of this last season, which happened this, this past week, uh, I won't necessarily spoil it for you, but it, it was just one of those situations where you go, yes, you just dated 20 people for two months, 
Well, you whittled it down to one, and then it didn't go well. So I was like, yes, like, perfect. This is proof. Um, okay. Hey, there's some redeeming qualities about The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. We'll get to those. Uh, but, yeah, I see some head shaking in the back. There are. I'll tell you some. Um, but, but what I really want to do this morning is, is just ask us to lament together for a moment and let the scene grow dark before it, it grows light again. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard the term compassion fatigue. Uh, I think with, with especially how massive media has gotten and how much bad news there is, uh, if you watch it, you might be just drawn to it, or maybe you just choose not to watch it. Um, and so p- compassion fatigue is to look at things and be desensitized to all the pain and the hurt in the world and, and to just start to ignore it. And so I, I certainly am guilty of that, and uh, this psalm kind of forces us not to do that. And so let's choose to, at least for a few moments, uh, not do that. Um, before we get there, let's get a little background. So the, the psalm itself, Psalm 36, is a lament against wickedness. Uh, King David, representative of the people of Israel, God's people, writes this song to Israel. <clears throat> the, the most consistent reference you'll find that really kind of organizes the, the psalm itself is God's steadfast love. It's one word in the Hebrew, and it, and it refers to God's covenant love, God's affectionate, steadfast, never-ending, I will see through the completion what I have begun, love. And you'll see it in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 10, and it's noticeably absent in verses 1 through 4. Now, what does it mean to have God's steadfast love? There, there's a whole history that Israel has to build up to that when, when David speaks this out in this song. So Israel, <clears throat> as a people, depended on God to be a people at all. Israel's existence wasn't due to their, to their number. It wasn't due to their intelligence, their moral value, their faithfulness, or their abilities. Israel's existence as a people was because God loved them and had committed himself to them. And those of us who are in Christ are part of the new Israel, and, and thus that same steadfast love lands on us that we can come into that steadfast love and are if we're in Jesus. Um, There's a a couple different uh, covenants that God makes that I want to point out here. Um, The first is with Abraham. God says this, the father of of, uh, Israel, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's Genesis 12-2. Um, the next is, is with Moses, God has brought Israel, the nation, as they've grown in slavery in Egypt. He brings them out so they can worship him. And he makes this covenant with them, with Moses. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's Exodus nineteen five and 6. And I draw our attention to this to see one thing in particular, that in both the covenants that God makes with his people, he says, you will be a blessing, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's intention in forming a people was always to reach the whole world. And so Israel was, in essence, a beachhead people, that God established Israel as, as a beachhead in a wicked world that they would be people that were 
loving of him that, that we're God's people in God's place, living under God's rule. And that that would then spread to all of the world and redeem all things was God's purpose. And so, though it's written to Israel, this psalm, it looks beyond Israel to the rest of mankind and all creation. Faced with the wickedness of this world, it turns our hope to God's steadfast love. Because our hope doesn't come from humanity's ability to get it right. Our hope comes from God's promise to restore all things. I, I think that hits home with a lot of us. I, um, Maggie and I went to a concentration camp when we were uh, in Germany a few summers ago. And before we had gone, Maggie's older sister, um, who's not a Christian, she's in the Lord, she warned us that going to this concentration camp had wrecked her for a few days. And by all means, that's a really beautiful thing. I would hope that like, we would be really wrecked over that kind of wickedness. Um, but Maggie and I went, part of it was probably because she would warned us, um, it was a very somber day, uh, but it didn't necessarily wreck us uh, for a few days afterwards. And Maggie and I kind of thought about why, you know, why have we kind of been able to, to move on? And, and it was because it didn't surprise us, per se. Um, I've had this conversation with Maggie's older sister before. Do you think people are basically good or bad and why? And it's kind of, it's really a loaded question, obviously. But uh, she's like, I think people are basically good. And if you walk into a concentration camp and think people are basically good, then it will be a shocker. Um, but if you trust in God's word and say there's people bear the image of God and are incredibly priceless, and yet we're not morally good, there's something corrupted within us that has infected everything, it won't surprise you the depths that we can go to. And so we turn our attention in that to God's precious, steadfast love, his commitment to destroy the wicked and to restore everything one day. So as we, we break down this psalm, we'll, we'll really look at just three different sections to it. So the first is verses one through four, and we'll just stop and lament wickedness. The next part, part two, is God's precious, steadfast love gives us hope. In verses 10 through 12, the end of the psalm is really a, a prayer that David sort of takes an aside with, and then just a declaration of one day the wicked will be gone. So let's hop in. Verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. When David says wicked here, he's not necessarily referring to people with, with moral flaws. Um, what he's referring to is those people that are given over to, to doing evil, that wickedness is, is kind of a pattern. And I, I say pattern because as you go down to, to verse 4, he says he, he plots trouble while on his bed. He's describing this wickedness. He sets himself in a way that is not good. You see, wickedness is a, is a place that a pattern of wickedness leads to. But in saying wicked, David's not excluding the people of Israel. And so he, he's identifying that there are wicked people within Israel. He knows it well because he'd been hunted by his own king. Um, as well as wickedness that's outside of God's people. And so I think there's a warning in that for us to know that wickedness can be inside the church as much as we see it outside. So let's take a moment and, uh, and lament a little bit of uh, specific wickedness. Um, I've been, <laughs> this is terrible to spend time with, uh, to read the news uh, extensively over the last few days. And uh, one of the guys you've probably seen in the news is a guy named Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein. And 
just some facts about him. I'll read them off. Uh, he's a multimillionaire charged with sex trafficking. His victims were as young as 14 and as many as 100. He hired people who would recruit and bring young girls to him. He was first arrested in 2006, but only served 13 months in a private wing of county jail and was even allowed to leave each day to work at his office. That's wicked. He worked at Bear Stearns, the financial company, uh, and he was a key person in subprime mortgages and derivatives market, believe it or not. Uh, he got out of Bear Stearns before it collapsed, and if you like, don't know a little bit of this history, when Bear Stearns collapsed, it was actually what catalyzed the 2008 financial crisis. Wicked guy. He also allegedly had an interest in eugenics, which is selectively breeding humans to create a superior race. And he was hatching a plan to breed himself into the gene pool through groups of 20 or more women at his private ranch in New Mexico. Wicked. It's hard to even imagine. And, and after his first arrest, the guy actually joked that he was a sex offender, not a sexual predator, and that the difference was between a murderer and a person who stole a donut. I, I just, it really shocks me that that is there. And he's not the only one in the world. You know, there's, there's certainly other things. Um, one of the other pieces of wickedness that I've certainly seen and you probably have too. I, I remember watching or, or seeing this photo um, of the border crisis. And yeah, I'm not being political by any means, but I remember seeing this father holding his arm around his daughter and they were face down on the Rio Grande after they had drowned trying to cross illegally. And uh, it hit home more because I've got a one-year-old uh, daughter and a second daughter on the way. And I... It, the thing that struck me the most was how wicked must the place that you left be that it was worth risking that? How wicked must that be? And, I mean, we all know kind of the, the story of how families are getting split up um, at the border. And um, <clears throat> I, I learned, you know, sometime a few weeks ago that part of the reason that that was a policy to begin with splitting up families was because uh, drug traffickers and uh, human traffickers would actually kidnap children and try to cross the border with children because we were more lenient with families. And so the policy itself was actually started in an effort to protect the children. How wicked is that? And now it's just a big mess. There's wickedness. Uh, in the world, and it's, it's local, too. Uh, I, I guess I can only really speak to, to things that I'm aware of. Um, I know there's the, the Willow Shelter for um, women who have been under domestic violence, and it means there's domestic violence. It's wicked. Um, there's the Women's Insight Center uh, to help women who are seeking an abortion or, or might be considering it um, to find hope. And I often go, like, so, so much of the time, like, those women aren't in that position. Uh, willingly, they, they go, I don't know what other options I have and how wicked is it that they're in the position they are. It's wicked. Oh, God, help us. Um, 
So let's look at some redeeming qualities of the bachelorette. Let's lighten this up a little bit. Okay, so the redeeming quality of the bachelorette for me is that uh, my wife and I have learned something about each other through the process of watching The Bachelorette. Um, we, we would routinely, after watching an episode, get in debates. And I had, so, so often I didn't realize why we were fighting over this. And there were really loose fights. It was, you know, often joking. Um, but we'd, we'd, like, I, I would step out, I realized, and I'd analyze the situation and go, this is why this is really dumb. And no wonder this person reacted this way or, or whatever else. And Maggie would actually empathize and put herself into the place of the people on the show. Those are two very different ways to interact. So a few weeks ago when I said, man, Hannah is the name of the the bachelorette most previous, and uh, I said, you know, this, this, she, I, here's my, here's my guess, my projection of what will happen in Hannah's life is she's going to pick this dude, Peter, of course, she should have, and uh, (laughs) she's going to pick Peter and then uh, he's like such a hopeless romantic. He'll be super loyal. But this show has set her up to date 20 people at a time. Like she's going to get restless and it's not going to go well in their marriage. And uh, I, okay, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to judge. Like I'm just going the trajectory of what this situation sets up does not look good. That's really all I'm trying to say. And Maggie was so offended. And I was like, no, that's not what you're saying. You're, you're judging her. And I'm like, no, hold on, no, hold on. Like, and, and we got into this debate, and I, I realized that Maggie was, was literally identifying with Hannah in the show and saying, like, I mean, it could have been me. Like, I definitely saw the world that way at one point. And honestly, I've, I've really admired it at this point because Maggie goes, this pattern of life is not far from me. And, and I really think that verses 2 through 4 in this psalm, like, draw us into that to say, Man, this pattern of wickedness in life is really not far from me. And the scripture would affirm that. So the, the verse 1 where it says, there's no fear of God before his eyes. Uh, Paul quotes that in, in Romans 3, verse 18. And he, he's quoting it to uh, at least to basically finalize his point that, hey, just because the, the Jews had the, the law, like were they any less subject to sin? And he's making the point that no, nobody is less subject to sin. No human being is less subject to sin. And he, he eventually goes on to, to make the point that it's like no work that we could do will justify us in God's sight. Like who we compare to isn't each other, it's to the goodness of God and nothing that we can do will finally reach that. And therefore, like really what the law does is it just shows us our need. It shows us and exposes us. And so I think this psalm exposed me as I'm reading. It says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever had this, you know, experience where, you know, you're, well, I would assume you did, uh, where you, you have this choice and you see it clearly between right and wrong. And I could do this and like, yeah, I, I have this gut feeling that this is not what I'm supposed to do. But then you justify it. Like you find some way to reason around it so that it doesn't seem as bad. And then it, it, you just find this way to go, oh yeah, it's, it's not bad. Like I can totally do this. Careful not to flatter yourself in your own eyes that your iniquity cannot be found out. I'm guilty. Um, 
The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. Uh, that word deceit, there's this dishonesty. And I don't know, I'm certainly guilty of this, of how many times have I, withhold tr- have I withheld truth in order to look better in somebody else's eyes? How many times have I like, had the opportunity to confess fully and, and planned to like, with, withhold just a little bit so that it, it didn't land as hard as it could have? Um, I'm guilty. He plots trouble on his bed. He sets himself in a way. There's the pattern that this is describing is not good. He does not reject evil. And I, I saw like in this, does not reject evil, a passive view of evil. It's not just that he like, like rejoices in evil. It says he does not reject it. And so in some ways I just go like, do we hide our faces from evil? When we see it, do we just sort of go, oh, I don't want to engage that. I'm afraid of the conflict. Like, this is a pattern that's in each of our lives that arrives at wickedness. And so wickedness is summed up in the core of it, which it says in in verse 1, there's no fear of God. And so I would just ask this to you, is your ultimate authority in your life yourself? Because that's the root of wickedness. And it's the fear of the Lord coming into the awe of God that will turn you around. And those patterns will also change. Um, uh, there's a friend that I, I want to lament and then actually celebrate uh, her story at, at one point. So um, this is a friend that, that Maggie and I met in college. We'll call her Jane. And uh, Jane started to get to know Maggie and her roommates because she would come over to watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Redeeming qualities, right? Okay, so she'd come over, uh, didn't know the Lord, um, had a really terrible background, and it took her years before she actually opened up to Maggie about this. Um, but when she was in high school, thirteen or pardon me, 14 or 15, um, she actually had... Uh, like her, her older sister was going through a really, really hard time, and so her parents were focused in on helping, like family survive and like her older sister get healthy. And during that time, Jane would spend a lot of time at her best friend's house. During that time, um, her best friend's father, I don't know how it happened exactly, but he became her confidant. She would confide in him and then he eventually manipulated that into a sexual relationship with her. And that relationship brought so much wreckage uh, into her personally um, she developed an eating disorder, all kinds of things. Um, and it went on and off that relationship for 10 years. And, uh, at one point, uh, before, maybe their senior year, uh, she and Maggie had a conversation and she asked Maggie, like this God that you talk about, like, where was he? When I was going through that, where was he? And I'd actually want to propose this, um, that the rest of the psalm actually gives us a picture of a way in which the Bible answers that question. Um, So let's, 
Let's go there. Part two, God's precious, steadfast love gives us hope. And so there's no real transition. David just turns his attention. He goes, my attention's on the wicked, and now it's on the steadfast love of God because the contrast is so stark. In verse 5, he says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And he remembers the things that he's seen Israel go through. You know, Israel doesn't have, uh, or has an extremely checkered past with God. God identified them, loved him as his people, said, Hey, here's the way in which you can live that'll like actually reflect me and be a blessing to all people. And it was just a roller coaster ride for them. Sometimes they would do it rarely. And other times they would actually like completely reject God, start worshiping other gods, live in a way that's completely contrary to that. And then like God would discipline them and then restore them. And then it was just a cycle of that. And David's looking back on this and remembering, God, your steadfast love, you've never left us. You've never left us, and that, that steadfast love extends to the heavens and to the clouds. It covers everything. Israel had seen God's faithfulness, and it looks here beyond Israel because God's steadfast love extends to all creation. In verse 6, he goes on to say, man and beast, you save, O Lord. Like It's not just us, it's mankind and creatures you will save. And so when we turn our attention to God's covenant love, it reminds us that God's intention is to purify and restore the whole world. All of creation, people from every tribe, nation, ethnicity. And then at verse 6, he goes, your righteousness is like the mountains. So imagine as high as you can the mountains of God and your judgments are like the great deep extending as high as you can possibly imagine, as deep as you can imagine. And, and this righteousness and this, this, your judgments, like David's really referring to the direction and instruction that God gives for life. God, you're good. The, the direction you give us in life is, is life-giving. And so if we would actually come in and go, Lord, how would you have me live my life? How would you have me see life? What's the story you tell that interprets my story? And when we fall into that, know our place in that, it, it fills us up and it actually is healing and protective. And this, this idea of, of judgment, like God's judgment flows out of his steadfast love. I've, I've had you know, numerous conversations with students. I, I work as a young life college director, student ministry on campus. And um, one of the questions that like, I, I ask sometimes is, hey, can... Does love hate anything? And the answer is yes. Love has to hate evil or it can't be love. If love doesn't hate evil, it's an accomplice. And so God hates wickedness. And we know that in that, that if God's steadfast love will cover all things and God hates wickedness, one day God will judge the wicked. And all wickedness, all of it. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And that, that causes us to step back and say, okay, Lord, okay. And so the scripture, like 
in, in trying to answer that question of how could God possibly be who we say he is if there's so much evil, the Bible presents us with some tension points. And so the tension points are this. God hates wickedness, but God also loves his creatures and creation, and God is merciful and forgiving. How, how do you, like, fit all those things together and preserve all of them? See, God's precious, steadfast love seen by Israel repeatedly gives us hope that God will have mercy, but without ever belittling wickedness. You see, one day God will completely wipe out evil, but he's patient to do it. And back to our friend Jane's story, and this is the, the part to celebrate, like, she shouldn't know the Lord when she graduates from KU, and she actually gets into PA school, uh, physician's assistant, and moves to Alabama for it. And part of the reason she chose a school in Alabama was actually to be near this guy. It's heartbreaking. And um, again, a little bit off and on, but she gets into a community that's involved down there in some medical missions. <clears throat> and she gets to go on a medical mission. And she's in, as she you know, has told this story, she's in a patient room with a doctor and the doctor is explaining to this patient that she's terminal, which means there's nothing that they can do and she's going to die. And so in that, the doctor on this medical mission goes, there's nothing that I can do, but I have hope to offer you. And the doctor to this terminal patient goes on to begin describing eternity and pointing towards Jesus for that future. And our friend Jane just started crying in the patient room. Like she just starts weeping because for the first time in her life, she realized that like all the things that she was trying to fix, all the control that she was trying to have to figure out her life in this time, she goes, I'm, I can't get it right. But if that's my hope, it changes everything here. And she came to faith in Jesus right then. And she, she came back and she got plugged into a church and uh, on, in October, uh, we're headed down to her wedding. Uh, with a guy that she met uh, through work. They go to church together. He loves the Lord. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. <laughs> you see, um, when we have hope in Christ, it changes everything about how we see life here. And that's, I think, as we, we're going to jump ahead and go to verse 9. David just proclaims this to God, for with you is the fountain of life, and your light do we see light. With you is the fountain of life. With your light, do we see light? He's saying like, look, like when we interpret our story with the story that you tell about us, your steadfast love, then it, it changes everything. I actually see life with, with a hope, a gratitude, no matter the circumstances. And thanks to John, we, we know that like light, God's light, God is light, like the light has a name also. So we go over to John 1, and it says this in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, we have complete hope 
only within the steadfast love of God and Jesus Christ. So receive him. Depend on him. We don't depend on the work that we can do, that as humanity we can figure out transhumanism, or we can somehow figure out a way to make everything right. Like we look to the work that Jesus did and say, I, I trust that. That one day God's steadfast love will guarantee that he'll make everything right. You see, God hates sin and wickedness. And when the day arrives, God will completely wipe it out forever. So you want to know what God's justice against wickedness and sin looks like? Look to the cross. God is patient and generous at the same time. In Christ's death on the cross, God made a way for all who are outside his grace to come in. Even the wicked, even the most wicked can be received into God's very family. Like, this is one of the mind-boggling things of me to the good news of Jesus that just, like, like proves to me that this is true. It's because the extremes of both, like, God's perfect goodness and justice are preserved, and yet God makes a way for even the worst of all to come into it. That is shocking. Absolutely shocking. I know no other hope. And that the aim of God's precious love is complete restoration without missing anyone who will come in. And so you want to know where God is taking this world? Look at the resurrection of Jesus and look at the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus with a restored body and then giving himself to us in the Holy Spirit. He actually empowers us to become the people we are meant to be. So one of my biggest fears in, in and like preaching a message of, of hope and look forward to what God will do is that we have this escapist mentality. I mean, you've probably seen it where it's like, boom, I got Jesus, I'm saved, I'm good, now I don't have to worry about anything else, I'm just gonna live my life. I'm like, that's not what this draws us to. Um, like we, we looked at in, in God's covenants with Israel, which we are now a part of, God's intention was always to establish a beachhead people where God would then cover the earth with his blessing. And so we are now meant to be that beachhead people. And so like, there's, there's a lot of wickedness. I don't often know where to begin. Um, so regarding wickedness in the world, like I go, compassion fatigue is real. Like, it's okay not to deal with everything you see on the news. But you got to deal with it sometimes. So choose not to look away sometimes. And maybe act locally. Like what would it look like? You know, again, there's so much I don't know. You guys probably know more than I do about some of the the ways that we can help within our own community. You know, in some ways, one of the things that's given me a heartache lately is there's this unspoken ethnic boundary in Lawrence. And I wonder what it would be like to just simply... Stop doing that and just build a bridge and love people. In myself regarding wickedness, that pattern, I gotta be really honest. It's a call to you, be honest. Recognize that you're prone to wander, like we sang, and choose to confess and repent and place your trust in Christ's work in your life and begin to just walk differently than that. And, and you, ha- you can't just like do it to God first, but you have to live within community. God gives us the body 
And he says, we are his temple. We are his body. And he means all of us. And so the call to us then as a beachhead people is we have the responsibility to be honest to one another, um, to encourage each other, to confront one another when we see sin in each other's lives, wrongdoing, or when we're hurt, and bring that honestly, and then restore each other in the forgiveness of Christ. Like, that's how we grow. I, I, I would bet that you're in this room because you want and love growing. Like, grow, and you have to do that with each other. And we turn to, to, you know, close to closing here, like 36 verses 7 and 8, where it becomes really personal. David says, how precious is your steadfast love, oh God. How precious is your steadfast love because it's a refuge to the children of mankind And when we rest on your steadfast love, we feast and we drink. Two two things that really brings to mind for me is um, I say a lot of goodbyes in student ministry, people that we love, that we've seen come to know the Lord and they move away. And I just get this sense that like, like one day, like I'll get the chance as like scripture describes when Jesus comes back, it'll be like the wedding, like a wedding feast. One day I'll get the chance to sit at the table across from someone I love and catch up on all the conversations I've missed. I look forward to that day. And it's precious to me, this, this sight that God gives. I, I remember um, I was faced with a whole lot of anxiety earlier uh, this year. I'm still figuring out exactly how to work through that, but um, I remember uh, being in a little bit of a pit of it, and Maggie asked me the question, is there a picture that, like, would express like how you feel right now. And so this is the picture. And I was like, this is totally from the Lord. Thank you, God. Is I, I remember thinking I'm walking into this room and the room is very dim. And on the walls, I can't see the top of them and lining them is our faceless voices. And these faceless voices are all yelling something else at me. And when I try to focus on one of them, I, I catch maybe the first two words until another one is yelling so loudly that I can't even hear and grasp. And so then I just get into this panic mode of looking around at all the different voices and going, I can't do anything. And so I just crumple on the floor in the fetal position. And so it's that place. Maggie goes, okay, that's, that's a hard place. Um, and she began to read uh, a scripture. And it, it was... Um, it was a time that, that Jesus healed a man uh, who was paralyzed that had been lowered through the roof by his friends. And it, like, he tells the man, he sees the faith of his friends, actually, and he, and he says, rise and walk. And as she's reading this, this image in my head is still going, and there's like this door that opens up in the back of the room, and Jesus starts walking through. And it's like there's this light around him, and I can't even hardly look at him. I'm on the floor. It's too bright. And as soon as this bubble that he's sort of in of light uh, comes over me, all the voices are muffled. And I I don't even really look at him, but like he offers me his hand and I take his hand and he picks me up and then he walks me over to this other part of the wall and he shines this light. Everything's still muffled and he shines this light on like one to three voices. I can't really explain it other than there's just one to three. 
And I'm like, oh. And I could understand what each of them was saying. And at the time, I remember thinking like, oh, like I'm human. I can only do one to three things at once. Like not at the same time, not multitasking per se, but like projects going. Because that's what was creating this panic in me as I can't keep up with all the stuff. And I, I tell you that now because the peace that came over me in that is that precious kind that David talks about in God's steadfast love here. It's that sense that like, like this restfulness and this peace in the midst of the chaos that is still going on, there's a muffledness. There's this hope, there's a guidance that's a blessing to me. And if you come into Christ, if you continue to say, yes, Lord, still, yes, Lord, that will be yours as well. And so in summary, there's a real wickedness in the world and we are prone to wander to it. And God, in his steadfast love, hates wickedness. He hates what happened to our friend Jane. He hates the things that have happened to you. He hates the things that are done by us. But one day God will bring a complete end to evil. And God in his steadfast love is also patient and full of mercy and he waits and invites all of us to see our need and trust the work of Jesus rather than anything that we could do to make up for it. And on the cross, love, justice, and forgiveness all intersect in a way you will find nowhere else. So you can receive grace and forgiveness and love without ever belittling wickedness. And he fills us, all Christians, with himself, his spirit, and has begun the process of restoring everything by making us a beachhead people. So together with eyes set on Jesus, we continue as a beachhead people. We love our families, we run our businesses, we work our jobs with integrity. We take classes with dedication, we fight against evil inside us and then outside us. And we do it all with joy, dependent on the Spirit of God. The hope we have in Christ that one day God will make everything right drives us. So may we show God's glory and invite everyone to come see and know him with us. We're on the journey. And one day, when it's all complete, we will sit down at a table together We'll see him face to face. We'll run and not be weary. We'll work and always be satisfied. And there will be no more fighting. And we'll celebrate the goodness and wonder of God together. And that's a hope worth defining my life by. So we lament wickedness, and God's precious steadfast love gives us hope. So as we turn to communion I want to look at verses 10 through 12 and just pray this as David does over us as a people. And so head down, eyes closed. Um, receive this, hear this, lament it, and rejoice. Lord, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Lord Jesus, come quick. Come quick in our lives now. Come quick in this world to restore us, restore all things. 
That's what our hope is in. And we know that your timing is perfect, so Lord, we wait. We wait patiently, and we say, Lord, please come quickly. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away, Lord. There is wickedness. We see evil in the world, and and Lord, let it not win. Let it not defeat me. Let it not defeat us. Let it defeat nothing and destroy it. Get rid of it, Lord. Ah, there the evildoers lie fallen. Lord, we see it. One day, they'll be thrust down, unable to rise, and we will be restored to new life. And we hope in that. We praise you, Lord. Amen. Um, as we do communion here, um, you know, anyone who like calls on the name of Jesus, we invite you to the table to receive the bread which you tear off, which represents his body, which has been broken for you, that you would dip it in, in the wine or the grape juice. The, the wine is in the stoneware. And that you'd remember what it is as his body was broken and his blood was spilled, that he's done to restore all things and invited you into it. Um, at Free City, we say, um, if, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you don't know the Lord, um, hey, stay where you're at and just reflect on this. Reflect on what you place your hope in in life. And if you would desire Jesus, like say, yes, Lord, there'll be some things on the screen that can help you walk through that. Um, and then, you know, as we come down, uh, you can come whenever you're ready. Uh, but if you'd stick to the right when you come down the aisle and go back on the left, that'll really help uh, smooth it out. Uh, and so, Lord, we praise you um, and say, come quickly. Uh, come when you're ready.